Lost in Twin Peaks covers the subplots today, the uh, parts of the episode dealing with non-Laura storylines, going scene by scene through those. Then we're going to talk about the uncanny elements of um, Cooper's dream and other psychic or unexplainable phenomena, mythology, spirituality type things uh, that that happen in this episode, kind of organizing them in that spot. Although we do also talk about some of that in the uh, Laura's spirituality uh, subplot that I mentioned in yesterday's uh, podcast. So trying not to overlap too much there, but it is worthwhile to have a whole section uh, just gathering, not just uh, connections that Laura had with that world, but but uh, with Twin Peaks in general. And there's certainly things to talk about that with that with this episode. For the non-Laura subplots, we have the Packard family life. Catherine confronts Pete when he kind of storms in on her, almost catches her, hiding the second ledger. It's obvious that's what he's there for, even though he says he's looking for his tackle box. And we get a nice kind of uh, domestic scene between them where she's just kind of scowling at... Well, she grins at him, but in that sort of, you know... Uh, aggressive way and says if you want to know something just be a man and ask me and the way pete takes it is great instead of being like offended or upset or cowed he just kind of smiles like he's finally got one over on her after all these years and goes i'll go look somewhere else he closes the door for the briggs family life we have major briggs attempting to comfort bobby and it just doesn't go well. You know, he's talking about his ex- his war experience, having to bury many young men, and uh, is implied it's Vietnam. That's the age that the actor would be. He'd be too young for Korea. So uh, Bobby just it doesn't want to hear it, doesn't do anything for him. And uh, we can see Major Briggs' whole body just tense up and brace himself as Bobby starts yelling back. It's like, not going to work. And then Mrs. Briggs, Betty, shows up putting on her gloves and smiling, grinning ear to ear. She's got like a happy button, you know, a, a smiley button on her blouse going to the funeral, which is a nice touch. For the Horn family life, we have uh, Audrey spying on Jacoby and Johnny when they're having that moment. And we hear Ben and Sylvia arguing in the background about Johnny. And Ben is just kind of a being a dick about it. You know, we've spent years trying to do this. And Sylvia's more arguing more. Just give, give him time. Give Give Jacoby, Dr. Jacoby time. He knows what he's doing kind of thing. So she's kind of taking his side, which is interesting. For the Ghostwood uh, Packard sawmill plot, we have Josie telling Harry that there's two ledgers and uh, then going to show him in the safe that we saw the you know in the previous episode, but it's no longer there. And the ledger that is there looks normal. So Catherine's listening over an intercom. We see her hide the ledger. She knows you know, what's going on. She knows Pete knows something about it too. So there's this intrigue going on in this household, all revolving around this this kind of plot about what's being covered up about the sawmill. Uh, Shelly, Bobby, and Leo's storyline. We don't get too much this episode, just Shelly hiding a gun after, uh, you know, Leo beat her a couple episodes ago. She's now got some means of self-defense that she hides in the house uh, after he's just yelled at her and stormed out again. We don't get anything for the James and Donna storyline this episode. Uh, Donna's only in the episode for a few seconds at the funeral. Uh, for Nadine's Drape Runners, there's nothing with the Drape Runners, but we do have Nadine telling Ed uh, that, you know, she always knew they'd be together. She remembers when they were in high school and she was just this little brown mousy thing and she would sort of stand back and look at forlornly at his his romance with Norma. And uh, so we're getting some good backstory here about, uh, you know, how, how these two ever got together in the first... Well, we don't know why they got together yet, but we 
get a sense of sort of how far back they go and where things were at at one point that he was in love with Norma and yet somehow here he is with Nadine. What happened? We don't know. The Teresa Banks case, we get the third episode in a row of nothing. I'm going to start doing a thing where if uh, episodes go more than three, or I'm sorry, if, if subplots or storylines go more than three episodes without even being referenced, I'm going to put them all together and just have a running list of semi-abandoned storylines. So for now, this case that seemed pretty crucial in the pilot, revealing that there was a serial killer on the loose, nothing. So they're either sitting on that or something. Mike and Donna, this is now the second episode of Nothing. Uh, They, you know, relationship's over. (laughs) For Ed and Norma, we have Cooper uh, sitting down to eat with uh with the the bookhouse boys and just from the way that norma takes his order as he sits next to ed he turns to ed and he goes how long how long you been in love with norma and she kind of sighs and they it's clear he lost a bet with uh, harry that cooper would be able to predict this just in like two seconds of their interaction pretty funny for the hank in prison storyline Uh, This is the episode where that picks up again. We have the parole officer informing Norma that Hank has a hearing coming up, and he hits on her while he's informing her of this, which she handles pretty well. And we get to see Hank's photo briefly here. So now we kind of know what he looks like if we squint. For the Josie and Harry storyline, we have Josie cuddling with Harry before she tells him about the ledgers, and then afterwards worrying, and he's there to protect her, and they just start like making out like kind of a passionate scene between the two characters uh, more so than anything we've gotten so far there it's very nighttime soapy bobby killed a guy no again third episode of nothing here so we've got a couple candidates next episode if they're still haven't picked up on it for you know quasi abandoned storylines for the subplots introduced in episode one we have the cooper and audrey flirtation cooper inviting audrey to breakfast uh, she meets him down in the Great Northern, calls him Colonel Cooper for some reason. No idea why that is. I guess she just likes the sound of it. Maybe it's a reference to something. And he uh, asks her to uh, write something. So she starts writing and looks at her handwriting. And he says, you wrote me this note. So it's revealed that she was the one who wrote the note that said Jack with one eye. And she admits to this, acknowledges it, and uh, they go from there. And that's when they start talking about Laura and the perfume counter and all of that. It's very obvious overdubs like you can hear that the sound the dialogue was added later for some reason Uh, it just kind of jumps out to me and uh, Audrey feels a little more grown up than she did in either of the previous episodes certainly more so than in the pilot where she's just like a mischievous little pixie Uh, she feels sort of more like a woman kind of equal well at times there are certain (laughs) certain dialogue like for example he says to her audrey that right word slant in your handwriting indicates a romantic nature a heart that yearns be careful and i love her response she says i do that like in in like verb tense that doesn't apply to anything he said so i don't know if a line was cut out or something or it was even accidental but i love that moment for some reason it's so perfect for the cocaine and twin peaks storyline the criminal activity We can fold the stakeout uh, into this now because we find out that Jacques is involved in this in this cocaine traffic. So Jacques sees a blinking red light at the roadhouse as he's going to bartend there and he turns and runs away. So that's some kind of warning signal to him. And then he calls uh, Leo on the phone and says, you got to get me back over the border, man. I got to go now, now, you know, so Leo goes out to transport Jacques. So Jacques knows that that they're on to him. And somehow uh, uh, Bernie must have gotten that word to him. So the other part of the cocaine and Twin Peaks storyline is the police bookhouse boys investigation. Really more bookhouse boys at this point. 
And uh, that you can also fold parts of the steak out into that. So this is the Bookhouse Boys, the Jacques storylines. Now we can consolidate those here into Cocaine and Twin Peaks, uh, the investigation. So Truman, Ed, and Hawk uh, are all sitting around a table when Cooper comes into the diner. And uh, Ed is like hesitant to let Cooper know about the Bookhouse Boys. He says he's just not one of us, but Harry overrules him. And they go ahead and they tell him that they've been setting up a drug sting with Jacques. Uh, Harry says, somebody's running drugs into Twin Peaks from across the border. We've been working this for six months, trying to set up a bust. Top to bottom, nobody walks. And Cooper asks who's targeted, and he answers, Jacques Renault, bartender at the Roadhouse. We figure him for the middleman. And so Cooper's kind of getting the sense this isn't just strictly above-board cop business. Uh, he's bringing in Ed without deputizing him. Ed says, somebody's selling drugs to high school kids. I figure that's everybody's jurisdiction. It's funny, between this scene and the stuff with Nadine, where he's just very kind of flat and, you know, not communicative. Ed's really kind of off in this episode. He's like more of a dour hard-ass than his sort of lovable, salt-of-the-earth, usual, sturdy self. And so I think Rathborn is, is right to say she kind of presented a different vision of him here that, that I think later she would wish she hadn't. Uh, Hawk, as I mentioned, doesn't seem to have any lines in this scene. It's mostly handled by Ed, but really mostly handled by Harry. And he gets this great little monologue, which we're going to talk about more in the uncanny section, talking about the evil in the woods and that this a secret society has been around for generations to fight it. And they're known as the Bookhouse Boys. So they all bring uh, Cooper to the Bookhouse, this cool space where it's like a bar with all these books lining the wall. And they have a little back room where Joey and James are there in their leather jackets standing around Bern, uh, Bernard Renault, this guy, this young guy who's tied up, who's Jacques' brother. And they're asking him about cocaine and if he's a mule and he won't answer it, won't play ball. And Cooper kind of says to him, like, look, you're tied to a chair, buddy, but why would you tell us that Jacques is working at the roadhouse tonight? You know, you don't want us to catch him. What's going on? And that's when we cut to see the signal going there. Cooper does not seem very concerned that these police have extra judiciously just tied a guy to a chair. You know, the show has a very uh, funny sense of like what's justified in terms of, you know, Cooper being this upright by the book FBI guy who's also apparently cool with vigilante violence. I don't know. It's kind of a funny twist. They haven't really addressed at this point, but the, this is the most uh, we've seen of that side of him. For the one-armed man storyline, all we get is Hawk telling Cooper that the man with one arm is still missing, and Cooper's just like, yep, find him. <laughs> That's about it. From the storylines introduced in the previous episode, One-Eyed Jax continues. Uh, as you know, mentioned a million times, Cooper figures out why Audrey wrote the note and decides, you know, maybe... or gets the idea that maybe Laura worked there. Audrey has a great little moment where he's kind of asking her, you know, well, what's One-Eyed Jack? She goes, you know, what place across the border? Men go there. He goes, what about women? She goes, well, women, women work there. For the invitation to love story, now we're actually getting a little story in this episode. We have Leland watching the show, and we get a cast list where all the characters are introduced, and uh, we see that one actress is playing two characters, which is a very on-the-nose segue into Maddie arriving with Cheryl Lee playing her as well as Laura. So, you know, they, they're, not, they're not being subtle there. And we have the character, Jared, uh, the, the old man, announcing that he's going to commit suicide. He's writing a letter to his daughter saying because of financial difficulties, he's going to take himself out, basically. 
and a daughter is knocking on the door. Dad, dad, let me in there. And that's right when Maddie steps in. So here we have this relationship between this subplot on the show and then things happening on the screen as well. We got two new subplots this episode. We have the Harry-Albert rivalry where Harry punches Albert onto Lar. We talked about that in, in part of the murder sequence, but uh, the reason he does that is that Albert just goes on a tirade against uh, not just Harry, but the whole town. It's kind of a funny moment. Albert's actual line is, well, I've had just about enough of morons and halfwits, dolts, dunces, dullards, and dumbbells. And you, chowderhead yokel, you blithering hayseed, you've had enough of me? And so that's it. Harry says, yes, I have. Winds up, you can see it a million miles away coming and hits Albert in the face. So, you know, that's the moment they have there. And then later in the episode, after Albert has shown them the autopsy results, he tells Cooper he's got something else to talk to him about, and he pulls out his complaint, his formal complaint that he's made about Harry assaulting him, the assault on my person. I'm going to report this. And Cooper just is like, no. And he gives him a dressing down. You know, he tells him off, tells him he'll make sure he's stuck away in the most remote hole in the D.C. bureaucracy if he tries to put that complaint forward. So he really takes sides here uh, in a way that you just would not see in the in the. Uh, previous episode where he seemed to be totally delighted by this this uh confrontation between the two so now it's become a real plot it's not just a uh one-off scene you know as it was in the previous episode and also uh, after albert leaves i guess we can mention this here that cooper pulls out his recorder and tells diane he wants to look into local real estate i think this might be the first diane recording since the opening of episode one uh, we got a lot in the pilot but not that much since then Another subplot that's introduced is Andrew Packard's death. That was set up in the pilot in episode one, but there was no plot hook until now. Uh, up until that point, it was just like something that happened to a character who died years before. So just to refresh your memory, and Andrew Packard died. Josie's husband, Catherine's uh, brother, he died in a boat accident years ago, and everything seemed above board. But now Josie's starting to suspect that maybe... Catherine killed him and she mentions that Andrew built the secret bookcase compartment that they're looking behind to get the to get to the safe so Andrew's coming up more and more and we're getting the sense that like there was there was more to his death and uh, Josie asks Harry do you think they'll kill me too and then for standalone scenes there's nothing with characters but we do get two pretty disconnected shots of the traffic light that we saw in the pilot couple times for the uncanny we've got some interesting stuff in this episode but uh it's all verbal the only visual is well briefly the red room while recapping so something we already saw we have cooper describing his dream as such he says in my dream sarah palmer has a vision of her daughter's picture deputy hawk sketched his picture i got a phone call from a one-armed man named mike the killer's name was bob no it was a different mike and a different bob they lived above a convenience store they had a tattoo fire walk with me mike couldn't stand the killing anymore so he cut off his arm bob vowed to kill again so mike shot him do you know where dreams come from acetyl acetyl <laughs> i'm gonna leave this in acetylcholine acetylcholine neurons fire high voltage impulses into the forebrain these impulses become pictures the pictures become dreams but nobody knows why we choose these particular pictures suddenly it was 25 years later i was old sitting in a red room there was a midget in a red suit and a beautiful woman the little man told me that my favorite gum was coming back into style and didn't his cousin look exactly like laura palmer which she did the beautiful woman she's filled with secrets sometimes her arms bend back 
Where she's from, the birds sing a pretty song, and there's always music in the air. The midget did a dance, Laura kissed me, and she whispered the name of the killer in my ear. Kind of like that description, because it is so like, sort of like a gumshoe, you know, uh, private eye kind of uh, conveying of this surreal sequence, turning the visual into the verbal, and from Lynch to Harley Payton, which is quite a journey in many ways. Uh, you know, they did not necessarily see eye to eye on everything, which we'll get to eventually. And then we have another wonderful quote uh, from Harry. There's a sort of evil out there, something very, very strange in these old woods. Call it what you want, a darkness, a presence. It takes many forms, but it's been out there as long as anyone can remember, and we've always been here to fight it. And then finally, we have that great exchange between Hawk and Cooper. Again, touching on a mystical without like pinning it down in any specific way, but just evoking that mood and that sense that there's more out there than meets the eye that we're seeing on the show. Do you believe in the soul? And Hawk answers, several. Cooper asks, more than one? And Hawk says, Blackfoot legend. Waking souls that give life to the mind and the body. A dream soul that wanders. And Cooper says, dream souls? Where do they wander? Far away places. The land of the dead. Is that where Laura is? Laura's in the ground, Agent Cooper. That's the only thing I'm sure of. And that's it for the narrative discussion of this episode. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about historical context, looking at what was going on on TV, in the world, uh, around this episode in early May 1990. So a trip back through time. And uh, if you support this show, please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. You can also rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Best way to promote this material. Thanks for listening.